Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. So, we are in part two of our MDMA Spectacular. <laughs> in the last episode, we talked primarily about what MDMA is, uh, when it was invented, who invented it, and what its physical effects on the body are, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, if you haven't listened to that and you want a little bit more background, I recommend that you go back and listen to it. But what we're going to focus on here today is primarily how it's being used in studies or how it's been used really for the last 30 or 40 years uh, in studies on how to treat people for various things from everything from mental problems to PTSD to cancer. Yeah, and uh, as, we, as we set up in the last episode, you're basically dealing with two different phases, right? So the substance is uh, is first uh, synthesized in the early 20th century. It's not until uh, uh, generally the uh, what the 60s, 70s, and yeah. 80s that you see it used therapeutically. You yeah. see people experimenting with its uh, p- potential uh, potential benefits uh, outside of a recreational environment, but then. It becomes enemy uh, number one, right? It right. becomes caught up in the as we mentioned the at the end of, of last uh, episode. It was immediately placed on like the most restrictive drug list, so uh, scientists couldn't even use it in their labs to study its effects. Right. And this goes for uh, for various psychedelics as well, such as uh, psilocybin. But then, in recent years, we've seen a resurgence. You've seen uh, you've seen psilocybin, you've seen MDMA, uh, all these substances coming back into the lab, yeah. and uh, and and professionals are able to actually explore them some more. Look at these undeniably potent, powerful substances, and say what. What here can we use? What can we change? What can we just uh, try to uh, to use in a proper environment and uh, and out of it all uh, generate some sort of positive effect? Yeah. And so before we get into the real, you know, boiled down details about this, I want to remind everybody that the podcast isn't the only way that you can, you know, interact with us or see the things that we're looking at this week. Uh we also are always writing on stuff to blow your mind.com. There's galleries, there's articles, uh, at least once or twice a week we're putting stuff up there and, uh, videos as well. So there's all the old stuff to blow your mind videos, but, uh, Robert, uh, for instance, is currently working on the How Stuff Works Now series. And as much as possible, we try to share those videos as well. Uh, and they're very stuff to blow your mind related topics, right? Yeah, yeah, very much. Weird science, that sort of thing. And hey, uh, I know a lot of you listen to us on various aggregated uh, programs, various mm. uh, apps and whatnot, but but there are certainly iTunes users out there. Yeah. You're getting us on iTunes, you're listening to, it, listening to us on your iPhones. If you get us through iTunes, show us some love there, help the algorithm, and that's a great way to support the show without spending a dime. So, all right, let's get into the pharmacological healing properties of MDMA. And this brings us back to Shulgin. Yeah, so Alexander Shulgin, who we talked a lot about in the last episode, also known as Sasha Shulgin, the godfather of ecstasy, uh, was also pri- primarily responsible for bringing it to the psychological community. Uh, in, in particular, um, his wife, Anne, uh, my understanding was that she was a therapist, and she used MDMA in some of her therapy sessions with her patients. But he also... Uh, introduced it to a guy named Leo Zeff in 1977, who started using it in psychotherapy and introduced other therapists to it. And so my understanding is that there is this kind of underground network of therapists who are using it in 
their research and in their studies, and this is before it was tremendously illegal. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, obviously. It, um, you know, one of the areas you see mentioned a lot is uh, its use in couples therapy, because mm-hmm. ultimately, as as we tried to drive home in the last episode, this idea that MDMA and ecstasy you know produce this feeling of ecstasy is uh, is a bit misleading. It's more empathy and sympathy. It's more yeah. a feeling of openness. I, again, I like to think of it as. The self becomes permeable to the world. And so it, it, it's able to improve emotional communication skills. So that was, and yep. boost empathy. So this is where uh, psychotherapists would use it to say you have two individuals that, uh, they're having marital problems. They're having communication problems. They have all this stuff bottled up inside. Well, then in these cases, perhaps MDMA can be used to open the two up, to get them to talk about things that they're not talking about. Uh, so it's not a situation where, like, ah, you're having marital problems? Take two of these and call me in the morning. Right. It's like, let's yeah. let's have a rap session, and uh, let's take this, you, you will take this first, and this will enable the sort of open communication we need. Yeah, I can't emphasize this enough. For all of these psychotherapeutic uses that we're talking about here, they have to go hand in hand with actual sit down in the chair, talk to a therapist counseling, right? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's not like you just take the MDMA and call them in the morning, right? Yeah. Like as we just said, it's it's got to be uh, in conjunction with building trust with somebody that you can talk to objectively about what, whatever the issues are. Yeah, it's right? MDMA assisted psychotherapy, not yeah. psychotherapy assisted MDMA usage. Yeah. And, and and we'll get into this more, especially with the PTSD stuff. But basically, what it does. Or the argument is, is that it allows you to increase your trust for people if you have trouble trusting people, and it reduces your fear and anxiety levels. Mm-hmm. So it's particularly good, as I, you know, as you just mentioned, for something like couples therapy, where there's communication issues. If you have fear of not communicating something, or you need to trust your partner more, that that's where the idea lies in its usage. So yeah, it was. Being used as early as the 70s and, you know, probably up until the mid 80s, right around the time that it was made illegal in the United States. Uh, but, you know, that that was primarily like an underground thing. It wasn't like it wasn't like a, a mandated uh, it wasn't like in the DSM four or whatever came out in the 70s. Right. And so uh, it, it wasn't until a more modern time, really r- right around the 2000s, I want to say, where we started seeing MDMA show up again in psychotherapy trials. That's right. And uh, the, the primary player here is uh, an organization known as MAPS. That's Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And uh, they're, they're concerned not just with MDMA, but with uh, psilocybin, other yeah. substances. Um, and they continue to explore, quote, whether MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can help heal the psychological and emotional damage caused by sexual assault, war, violent crime, and other traumas. So this yeah. is this is one of the huge areas of, of exploration here. And uh, oh, and just to give a little more background on maps, um, they are uh, it's a it's, they are operating in several different countries. I think five right now: uh, Canada, Israel, Spain, Switzerland, Israel, uh, and and the U.S. Yeah, there are trials being done in the U.S. And I, I think I mentioned this at the end of last episode, but it bears repeating here. It is super expensive to research this stuff, mm-hmm. not only because of all of the restrictions that have to be placed on the facilities in which you are holding the MDMA for these trials, right? Like you have to build like like super uh, uh, like heavy door frames, right? Or like uh, security systems that you normally wouldn't have for these places. But uh, the medical grade MDMA is also quite expensive. It can cost up to $170 
or $75 per dose. Yeah. So, and that's like, as we were saying last episode, one dose is like, 100 to 150 milligrams. Yeah, again, think back to the the fact that one of the reasons that it was shelved for so long is that it was expensive to study. So even in the you know the early 20th century, German chemists uh, looked at it and uh, and they realized, oh, it has some sort of interesting properties, but yeah. who has the budget to explore it? So before we dive deeper down into the psychotherapy thing, I think an interesting way to approach this is to add the criticisms up first, so then as we go through it, we can sort of say, okay, were those criticisms valid or not? Okay. Uh, And in the research, uh, one of the major MDMA researchers who's published a lot of literature on this is a guy named Andy Parrott, who's, uh, I believe, out of the University of Swansea. And he, you know, has done a great paper that's on sort of just the the general 25 years of empirical history of chemistry, right? Uh, The chemistry behind MDMA. Um, but he does acknowledge that there's been some criticism, uh, and mainly that it's not safe for clinical use. Uh, and some proponents say that it needs to be used repeatedly for more than one or two sessions, or otherwise it won't produce gains in those situations, right? Uh, and remember from the last episode, MDMA's effects are short-lived, and uh, it doesn't exactly work like that. You know, as we, we said before, there's a chronic decline over time. Right. Uh, the more you use it, the less the positive effects are and the more the negative effects are. So there's some concern about that with the, the tolerance levels. But there's also acute effects of MDMA that are unpredictable, which we talked about as well last time. They can both be positive or negative, right? Like that, for instance, that there's both positive and negative uh, emotional responses. Uh, or, or that there's some undesirable experiences during the sessions. And sometimes these undesirable experiences can last up to two weeks long. So that's kind of Parrot's argument is, you know, let's, let's stop before we do this. But, uh, there's also the idea of the neurochemical depletion, the serotonin, right. uh, and can lead to feelings of depression, anger, and paranoia anyways. Uh, and it's especially bad for those who have pre-existing depression. And it could even predispose people who, like, for instance, were already depressed but had, um, you know, dealt with that issue to a recurrence of their previous psychological disability. So these are all of his uh, essential, like, criticisms of, I don't know that we're quite there yet for the psychotherapy thing. And he presents us with two scenarios uh, in which he, he thinks that, that this isn't going to particularly work out. And I'll read through the first one and... Uh, we can w- respond to these as we go through the the benefits of the psychotherapy and see if see if his criticisms are right. Yeah. So if we don't launch into picking them apart right away, understand that that's the reason. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Parrot's first scenario is that you have a special Air Force soldier who's discharged from the army because he has PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. His therapist says, "Let's try this MDMA assisted therapy out." Uh, but the drug stimulates the reemergence of the soldier's unpleasant war experiences. And this includes feelings of aggression. The soldier's trying to control these while he's at the clinic. However, later that evening, this is the scenario, mind you, he violently attacks a stranger in the street. Following his arrest, his lawyer argues that this aggressive act has been triggered by the MDMA-assisted therapy session. So, okay, so, so uh, sorry, uh, Parrot is, is basically saying, okay, this guy could potentially go out and assault somebody due to the negative feelings that get dredged up by this therapy-induced MDMA session. Okay. I have so many responses to that, but yeah. I'm going to <laughs> stay clear for a minute. Uh-huh. All right. The, the second scenario that he lays up uh, is uh, in, in, called, involves a hypothetical case of a female rape victim. 
Uh, he says, after the first MDMA-assisted therapy session, the client feels much better, but the gains do not endure over time. Following a second uh, session, uh, this MDMA-assisted, uh, again, there's a brief period of, uh, of relief. And then a third session is requested, but the therapist explains that, uh, that it, she can't uh, clinically recommend it. Right. So the client now quote, seeks out their own illicit supplies of ecstasy slash MDMA. The only time she feels good is when she is on MDMA and she becomes a, an habitual user. However, with reducing efficiency and increasing midweek blues, her chronic anxiety, depression, and low self-esteem steadily worsens. Mm, yeah, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, th- that seems counterintuitive even in and of itself, right? And the idea that this person would become a habitual user given what we know from Parrot's own discourse about MDMA and that most people don't use it more than 10 times. Yeah, everything we discussed in the first episode seems to to poke holes in yeah. that argument. And a lot of the research for that came from yeah. Parrot's own writing. So yeah. I'm not quite sure about this, but let's, let's see if it matches up as we go along. Okay. Now, and this is something that ties into a criticism of Scenario 1, but also just important to, to look at going forward, mm. is that when it comes to the treatment of PTSD, there is... And there is an urgent need for better treatment methods. So this just, yeah. this isn't just a situation of a bunch of scientists or, or even a, you know, an organization saying, Hey, we've got to find a way to make MDMA practical. This is not Woody Harrelson wearing <laughs> right. a, a hip jacket around, right? Yeah. This is, this, this, these are professionals saying, Hey, we need a better tool here. We need, uh, better methods and we need better drugs to help these individuals. There's a potential answer here. Let's explore it. So to piggyback on top of that, I think it's important that we sort of just quickly prime and establish what PTSD is, yeah. right? Like, it's a term a lot of us throw around. And I've heard people say before, like, oh, I have PTSD, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, this is what PTSD is. Uh, it is a manifestation of trauma physically in your body. It's common in victims of war and abuse. It involves shaking, sweating, crumbling anxiety, and flashbacks. And Basically, what we're looking at here is the psychological scars having physical repercussions, right? So they're physically affecting a person's body. So that's what we're talking about here for treatment is being able to get uh, get them to integrate past that physical trauma or rather mental trauma manifesting physically. So here are a couple of quick points that come directly from MAPS about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. They say, they say in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA is only administered a few times, unlike most medications for mental illnesses, uh, which are often taken daily for years and sometimes forever. Yeah. Uh, and MAPS is undertaking a roughly $20 million plan to make MDMA into a food and drug administration approved prescription medicine by 2021. Now, here are just a few uh, pointers as well uh, that come from uh, Ingrid Pacey, who uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, there was a fabulous bit uh, with her on uh, the uh, CBC radio show Ideas. Mm. Again, their three-part series, uh, High Culture, which I highly recommend yeah. for anyone who's interested in just the overall uh, uh, reemergence of psychedelic research uh, over the past uh, few decades and, uh, and some of the you know the the, uh, the concerns uh, therein. Uh, but. Uh, Ingrid Percy is a uh, psychiatrist. Uh, she's a lead investigator of MDMA-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder at the University of British Columbia. So she points out that from phase one studies around the world, we know that MDMA seems to lower fear 
particularly for treatment-resistant uh, PTSD, creating a window. And uh, it's interesting she says window because yeah. um, Shulgin. Shulgin references a window at that, uh, I believe it was the 100 milligram level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, creates a window during which the trauma can be considered and discussed without the associated fear getting in the way. So it's about sort of allowing the monster to come out so you can look at it and deal with it and and, yeah. and perhaps exercise it, right? According to Pacey, MDMA psychotherapy usually begins with uh, feelings of relaxation, easing of muscles, and uh, among uh, PTSD patients, you, you'll often see f- the flashes of the past trauma that then emerge, uh, and it can even be a strong bodily experience. So we mentioned this in the last episode about how, how taking ecstasy can produce uh, these very strong negative uh, feelings, can uh, can pull those out of an individual. Right, so that's where I assume Parrot is getting his scenario, too, of which the soldier is experiencing such negative um, emotions being recalled. Yeah. And but that, but the, the, what, where I can't, I'm having difficulty following him is the logical extension of that to going out and assaulting a person on the street. Right, because he's, he's saying, well, you're gonna pull, you're gonna pull the monster out of the closet and then the right. monster could win. Well, yeah, but part of, what are you gonna do? Just leave it in the closet? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the idea here is we've got to, we've got to face these traumatic experiences, right? And that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy can potentially allow us to do so in, in a safer way with reduced fear. Um, and, and during all of this, the therapists are monitoring vital signs. Uh, uh, yeah, really, it's kind of the best-case scenario to be doing MDMA in, right? Because you're not, like like we talked about last episode, like, the some of the bad side effects like the overheating or the the chewing on your uh, uh, teeth or yeah, grinding your loud teeth. music yeah. yeah all of that kind of stems out of the dance culture not because of the drug but because of the environment that you're in right yeah so you know this is again it's about using it therapeutically with a therapist using it as a way to open that window to to gain access to things that are normally going to be too too buried or yeah. or too fear ridden to to tackle, and this is this is really key here. Uh, again, one of the the major issues is that there we need better tools, we need better medications yeah. to treat PTSD. And according to uh, to Percy, um, you see about a thirty percent uh, success rate for conventional uh, multi year PTSD therapy. Okay, but so far with uh, MDMA PTSD therapy. You've seen they've seen an 85 percent success rate. Wow. Okay. Well, that backs up some of the other stuff that I read, which said that there were significant gains found on there's a there's a scale that's used to measure somebody's level of PTSD. It's called the PTSD scale. Mm -hmm. And after using that, uh, after using MDMA in therapy, using the PTSD scale, they found that there were great gains over time. And in fact, when they did placebo trials telling people that they were doing MDMA when they weren't, they found less gains. So it, the, the evidence does seem to show that this works. Um, it also, you know, the aim here is, a, is to help these people with their debilitating s- symptoms. It's, it's when they haven't responded to other therapies. And it's, this isn't like, oh, let's just try this. You know, yeah, this is, this is a situation where it's resistant it's to like therapy. It's last yeah. resort. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other treatments are anything from talking to, uh, exposure therapy to the things that cause the PTSD to all these daily medications that we could be using. 
Uh, one therapist says that they think that it works because of MDMA's unique properties. And we talked about this last time. It's both a stimulant and a psychedelic, right? So they said, quote, the stimulant gives people confidence and the psychedelic allows people to reflect on themselves and their experiences in a different way. This combination helps them confront painful memories. And then in 2009, there was an article by a Norwegian psychologist named, I believe this is Paljorin Johansson. Uh, and he argued that it works through several mechanisms. Basically, the MDMA is increasing the levels of oxytocin in your body. And this is the, we call it the cuddle chemical. Um, I, be- I, I think you guys might have talked about this previously on the episode. It's released during breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Not in the episode, on the show, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Oh, yeah, it comes up a lot. Five it's, years. it's one of yeah. the, the, the most frequently mentioned uh, uh, properties of the body, I feel. So it increases our oxytocin. And what that does is it prevents the brain's emotional processing center from overpowering our higher thoughts. So it quells fear and it encourages trust, just like we were talking about earlier. So, um, you know, we mentioned MDMA has to occur in conjunction with psychotherapy. You aren't just taking MDMA and it's not like you immediately go into therapy and you're taking MDMA with the therapist. You need to establish trust with this therapist through a series of sober sessions before you do these MDMA sessions, and usually at the most, I think it's like three sessions, which kind of makes sense along the lines of uh, what we know about people taking MDMA, its effects, and their efficacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, you know, this uh, co- contradicts, I want to say, Parrot's uh, first example of of uh, the, the potential uh, subject where this wouldn't work for them, right? And that they become, or sorry, it was their second example where the girl becomes an addict, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, they only use it for three sessions at the most. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to we're going to roll through some other potential uses. Uh, MDMA as a cancer fighting agent, uh, as a potential uh, um, aid in cu- in couples therapy, and even a way to ease an individual uh, to the death point. Mm. All right, we're back. So uh, we set up for this a little bit in the uh, in the previous episode the potential for for MDMA to help us fight cancer, which is this is one of the this is the an area of MDMA research that is uh, it kind of stands apart from the rest because it's yeah. so it, it's not attached to the most apparent properties of the drug. Right. In fact, uh, so the funny story. Yesterday, I was getting my hair cut, and uh, it was the first time I was getting my hair cut by this particular hairdresser. She asked me what I did for a living and what I was working on right now, and I told her I was researching MDMA. Uh, and and she said, oh, that's fascinating. And I said, it can be used to help people with cancer. And her immediate thought was, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, if they're in pain, it would make them feel happy. And I was like, oh, no. I mean, yes, I'm, there are instances where they've been using it therapeutically that way. Mm-hmm. But, no, like, let's recap from last episode. There's that apoptosis effect in which programmed cell death actually attacks the cells in your liver and retina when you take MDMA. Uh, so let's remember that. That's what they're using here to try to take take cancer out. They're trying to kill the cells in cancer. It's not just as like a, you know, sort of like a pain reducer kind of thing. Yeah, so we've known since around 2006 that uh, ecstasy, MDMA, and antidepressants uh, such as Prozac have the potential to stop cancer cells. The catch is... Then in order to kill the cells, you have to drop an absurd amount of ecstasy, as in a, a highly lethal dose. Um, just to refresh, we were talking in the previous episode about how you're talking about um, 
the average dose being in the, in the like a hundred, hundred and fifty milligrams. Milligrams, right? And if yeah. you get into one or one point five grams, you're getting into into a deadly um, uh, amount, potentially deadly amount. Yeah. So. In 2011, researchers from the University of Birmingham and the University of Western Australia um, looked into this. They were they were basically looking to ways at ways to tweak ecstasy, uh, to tweak MDMA at the atomic level, swapping out some of the atoms and its chemical composition to increase its cancer fighting power by a factor of a hundred. So, to put that in perspective, that means that you could have a single tablet of modified ecstasy that would have as much cancer fighting power as a hundred tablets without boosting the unwanted effects of the drug. So, yeah. because know, because the amount of M, this is my understanding, the amount of MDMA needed to start attacking the cancer cells is like 100 grams. Right. Right? And so to that would totally kill you. Yeah, yeah, that's like 100 times as much yeah. as, as would be would <laughs> 100 times a very strong dosage. Yeah. So they need to make it more powerful so you can take less of it to attack the cancer but not have the negative side. Yeah, effects. so basically taking the synthetic uh Substance and tweaking it even more to yeah. encourage the properties you need and discourage the properties that are going to kill the patient. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Alexander Shulgin would have promoted and wanted. I think his his uh, his studies of these psychedelic compounds to be used for going forward. You know, I mean, his hope was that they would be studied educationally so that we could find. These kinds of uses for them. Yeah, exactly. If you go back to the roadmap scenario, it's saying, hey, there's this road, and uh, you didn't know it, but there's a little turn here to the left, and it leads to a potential cure for cancer. So when you get into exactly how this works, uh, you really get bogged down rather quickly in the, the, the chemical and biochemical details. But the, the basic explanation, as uh, rolled out in that uh, 2011 paper, is the theory behind it is that the drug is attracted to the fat in the membranes of cancerous cells. And it makes the cells, quote, a bit more soapy, which can break down the membrane and kill the cell. And fortunately, cancerous cells are more susceptible. So... Again, they hope to uh, they hope to refine this. Uh, last, the most recent stat I saw was they are hoping to make it possible by 2021. But uh, again, that was that, that that was 2011 when they were rolling out yeah, that particular. I think uh, I read that same forecast. article and it said they thought they were about a decade away. Yeah, um, I'm curious where they're at with it right now, as of 2015. Yeah, hopefully we'll get an update uh, in the near future. I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something come out in the next year or so. Yeah. So, yeah, so, all right, we've covered is PTSD, cancer. What else can we use this for? Well, we already mentioned couples therapy uh, and about how it was rolled out with uh, apparently some level of success uh, in the 80s. Uh, but there is actually a 2015 study that was published in the Journal of uh, Psychopharmacology, and they set out to examine how MDMA might be used to improve communication about a spouse in therapy. So okay. this is interesting. It seems to, to be the key, key here is it's not about... As much about, oh, here you both take MDMA and we'll yeah. all talk together, but it's yeah. about getting an individual to share their own feelings and open up uh, about what's bothering them. So, Yeah, I could imagine, based on the stereotypes surrounding MDMA again, people hearing this and going, oh, okay, so they take ecstasy and it makes them want to have sex, which would subsequently... Yeah, or they want to love each other, they feel more yeah. open, they feel more sympathetic. But that's not, again, ecstasy is a misnomer. 
uh, and this isn't uh, all sexual. This is more about communication. Yeah, and you know, I, I do have to say that you know, it's 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 totally believable that you would have two individuals who have a connection with each yeah. other while they're um, on MDMA, and then afterwards they realize, well, as my normal self, even. With the inside of what I I had yeah. conversing with this individual, I no longer feel that connection. Mm-hmm. But again, this entails a therapist being present yeah. and using the information that you bring forth. So yeah, right. We don't recommend that like couples just do this in their kitchen together. Yeah, certainly not the kitchen. <laughs> um, so so we've discussed MDMA's ability to increase sociability. The drug alters speech production and fluency as well. And uh, and according to the study, it may influence speech. Content. So what they did is they rounded up 35 healthy individuals with prior MDMA experience, uh, completed um, two session with, uh, within subjects double blind study during which they received 1.5 milligrams of oral MDMA, and they also had a placebo. Whoa, that's too. tiny. That's a very small amount. 1.5. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that is. So then they would uh, after the the uh, substance had taken hold. Uh, Whatever limited hold it would have, uh, given the the, uh, the dosage, they engaged in five minute standardized talking tasks during which they discussed a close personal relationship, and they found that both analytic methods that they employed revealed that MDMA altered speech content relative to placebo. The drug increased use of social and sexual words, uh, consistent with reports that MDMA increases willingness to disclose. Okay, so that lines up with what we know from the PTSD thing, right? It makes right. you trust people. Yeah, more. it makes you, uh, you know. You're more permeable. Yeah. Uh, yourself is more permeable. And using the machine learning algorithm, the researchers, researchers found that MDMA increased use of social words and words relating to both positive and negative emotions. So, in other okay. words, it helped them open up about how they felt about this other individual, yeah. what the problems might be. And, and that is why it seems like it could be very useful in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So, I, I guess, like, the big problem here, though, is how illegal it still is and that it's really difficult to conduct trials like this, especially in a place like the United States. Right. Right. So uh, but some of the articles that I was reading about both the PTSD thing and the cancer studies were saying that they think that that there's going to be MDMA approved by the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, again, like maybe in the next 10 years or so. Yeah, and it seems like the same prognosis uh, with Canadian law. Mm-hmm. This is just me here, but my uh, my worry here is that what happens when this gets beyond peer-reviewed publications, yeah. science journalism, and, uh, and, you know, and radio programs and podcasts. What happens when this becomes a political football? And oh, you yeah. have individuals saying, oh, well, you're about to allow our psychotherapist to start giving ecstasy to people. What happens then? It kind of reminds me of um, uh, another Stuff to Blow Your Mind related thing. Uh, when you did that video last week about the God helmet. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of response on social media when we posted that video. I got the impression that a lot of people just read the headline and didn't watch the video, but yeah. they were basically... It, why, give a primer on what the God helmet is. Oh, uh, well, this was... Uh, <laughs> basically, we were talking about cranial electromagnetic stimulation yeah. affecting various portions of the brain. If very basically turning things in your brain on and off in order to see how they affect your electrical stimulation. Yeah, slight electrical stimulation to see how it affects your experience of reality. Right. And uh, there was some research involving this that's saying that, you know, by changing the way that you perceive reality, it might be able to help 
people overcome racism, for instance, right? Yeah. Uh, and the, the responses to that on our, our social media channels, a lot of people were very angry because they saw that as kind of like mind control, right? Almost like in a fascist kind of sense. So I could see the same thing happening with MDMA, right? It's like, oh, these... These therapists, you know, they're the activist therapists are going to try to reprogram our brains so we're just like them. Well, I mean, the thing is that both of these situations, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, electrical stimulation of the brain yeah. or pharmacological stimulation of the brain, mm-hmm. you're dealing with a psychedelic effect. You know, you're you're taking your normal consciousness experience and you're tweaking it a bit you're changing it yeah. you're changing your perception of self uh and reality in, in, in at least a very limited way mm-hmm. and that that can be frightening that can be illuminating and that's that's the whole that's psychedelia uh, as a whole it yeah, opens I like the door to, for a lot of experiences and I a like lot of emotions think of it like sort of along the lines of um drawings okay so mm-hmm. Let's say like you're looking at a drawing and if you know what one point perspective is, it's kind of how Wes Anderson shoots a lot of his movies, right? Like you've got a center point and everything stems out of that center point coming at you. But then you can switch to a two point perspective or three point perspective where you're looking at multiple angles or you're looking up or down from like a skyscraper or something like that. Right. And that's like a very basic metaphor for what's going on here. It's just changing the perspective with which you can look at the world with. Yeah, I mean, one might be heard to say something along the lines of, I've never thought about myself that way before, or I've mm-hmm. never thought about uh, this individual in this particular way before. And again, this isn't us condoning, like, go out and do MDMA right mm-hmm. now, or us saying, don't do MDMA, right? It's it's neither of those things, but I do think that it's interesting within a restrictive environment, using it in conjunction with therapy, and especially uh, you know, in, in a clinic like this where there's, you know, somebody on hand in case like you have a bad reaction or yes. whatever, right? Yeah, Rather indeed. than being in a, a farm in the middle of the woods where there's a secret rave going on. Now, the final example of uh, MDMA therapy and MDMA research that we want to mention here is uh, the possibility of using MDMA to treat individuals who are having a hard time with um with their with their impending death, with yeah. uh, with with fatal life, uh, you know, fatal conditions, life threatening illnesses, uh, as they approach the death point, and and there have been uh, some other studies that involve psilocybin and its use, yeah. uh, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, as as a way to help people uh, deal with that scenario. With and it's that. not just the pain we're talking about here, either. right? We're it's talking with just the gravity of understanding your yeah, mortality. Yeah. yeah. Thinking about yourself and the, yeah, and, and grappling with mortality and the basic heavy human stuff. So the, the, the main individual here is, uh, San Anselmo psychiatrist, uh, Phil Wolfson. And he's currently studying the use of MDMA assisted psychotherapy to ease anxiety in 18 adults diagnosed with life threatening illnesses. Now, all of these individuals have a, uh, prognosis life expectancy of at least nine months. They're, and they currently have severe anxiety related to life threatening illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his goal here is to see whether patients suffering from crippling anxiety, fear, or depression, uh, over a terminal diagnosis can find relative peace via MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions. So it's kind of the same scenario we've talked about with these previous uh, psychotherapy examples. Helping them open up about what's happening, help them gain a little perspective on what's happening, and in doing so, perhaps find a place of peace. Right. See it from a different angle, one with less fear. Yeah. 
But again, Wolfson study is just getting off the ground here, um, just started up this year. So hopefully we'll, we'll hear more of the details, uh, in the, the years to come, uh, and, you know, some of the core findings. And there's clearly got to be a lot of more research done in all of these areas before we're just doing this, you know, casually, uh, especially in, in the sense of like predicting that the FDA is going to approve MDMA for these right. public uses. And, and I think, I mean, casual is a good thing to mention because <clears throat> right. I think the underlying truth here is that it's such a potent and powerful substance that it, it should never be, never be done casually. Like I would argue that right. even in a recreational environment, it's not something to take lightly. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, the research that needs to be done right now is on all kinds of things, like why individuals have such strong physiological ab reactions to it, right? Like mm-hmm. we talked about the first episode, there's very occasionally individuals who have like cardiac arrest or seizures or something. That's not a common side effect of this, but why is it happening to these some individuals, right? Right. Uh, other things like, why is there such a variance in the mood reactions? Why, for some people, is it all positive, but for other people, there's positive and negative, or others, it's just negative? You know, what's going on there? How do other drugs in conjunction work with MDMA, right? Especially, like, when you think about um, PTSD patients who are already taking daily medication for their PTSD, how's that interacting with the MDMA? Yeah. I mean, even Sasha Shulgin in his research parties would tell his uh, his friends, look, don't take any medication for like three to five days before you come over here. And then, you know, we just need to figure out the, the chronic tolerance development as well, too. Like, nail that down. Why is it that when we take MDMA, human bodies basically over time, probably like between one dose and ten doses over time, uh, the positive effects lessen and the negative effects get worse. Indeed. Now, to close out here, I just want to throw out a quick quote. And this comes to us from uh, from Alan Watts, the late British uh, Buddhist and, uh, and counterculture um, icon, I'd say. Um, wrote a lot, spoke a lot about uh, about Buddhism and yeah. uh, and also a certain amount about uh, about about other uh, other re- modes of religion and also about a lot of the counterculture uh, stuff that was happening at the the time time he was alive. This particular quote comes from 1970, and he's he's probably commenting more directly on. On you know overt psychedelics yeah. like psilocybin and LSD, but I think this holds true for a lot of what we've talked about uh, regarding MDMA. Yeah, he says psychedelic experience is only a glimpse of genuine mystical insight, but a glimpse which can be matured and deepened by the various ways of meditation in which drugs are no longer necessary or useful. If you get the message, hang up the phone. For psychedelic drugs are simply instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. The biologist does not sit with eye permanently glued to the microscope. He goes away and works on what he has seen. And I think that uh, that matches up rather nicely with the, with the goals of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I do, yeah. And I, I kind of have always thought of Alan Watts as being sort of a contemporary of Sasha Shulgin's as well, too. Yeah, kind of, I, I wonder if those so. guys ever met, but they're kind of like on the same... The same Avengers team. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, them in, the two of them and Timothy Leary are yeah. on the psychedelic Avengers. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's about, you know, what we've got here on MDMA. But I'd really like to hear from you, the audience, some more about this, because I'm sure there's a lot of things we didn't cover. The literature in this is dense. I there's mean, we spent it, yeah. two days studying all this stuff leading up to it. And I, I there's no way we could even touch the surface. You know, there's just so much 
uh, that's being studied in it right now. So I'd love to know if there's things that we missed or there's things uh, in particular that you you know about that are in trial right now or being studied right now that we would be interested in coming back to in a future episode. Get in touch with us over social media. That is one of the best ways to let us know about these things. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and don't forget that you can always talk to us on Periscope every Friday at noon. Yeah, and if you would like to hear us take this approach, this sort of one-two approach with uh, with other substances such as uh, such as marijuana, mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever done any content on uh, marijuana and medicinal marijuana. That would probably be uh, an interesting topic. Let us know if you'd like to hear yeah. those episodes. In fact, the idea for this episode came out of us talking about uh, the instances of synthetic cannabis in the news in the last oh, yeah, week yeah. or two. That's yeah, true. and hey, you want to get in touch with us directly? You want to cut out stuff at blowyourmind.com and all the social accounts? You can just email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm sorry.